0: I'm Don Winslow, and you're listening to Writer Types.
1: Welcome to Writer Types. I am your host, Eric Beatner, and joining me today in the co-host chair is Lindsay Allen, our co-host for a day contest winner. Welcome, Lindsay.
2: Yay, welcome. Thank you. (laughs) Happy to be here.
1: That was, that was a, a slightly subdued uh, Muppet arm flail there. Though. <laughs> a
2: little bit, a little bit. I have an internal Muppet arm flail, so. There
1: it is. <laughs> is it a Kermit or is it uh, like, which character would you be?
2: Um, I mean, I always have a deep love of Miss Piggy and her sense of how she values herself and knows herself, but it is probably more like a Kermit flail. All
1: right. See, so already, where we're learning things about you already.
2: I know. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew this would go this way?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I did, this this is how they usually go. (laughs) Well, Lindsay is an accomplished TV writer for shows such as MacGyver, Emergence, and Marvel's Agent Carter. And it's a pleasure to have you join me today. And why don't you tell the folks who else is on the
3: show?
2: Well, today, legendary author J.A. Jantz tells us some heartwarming and uplifting stories from her youth.
3: She might've been a cute kid once, That was hard to tell, Now, She was dead.
2: Novelist and screenwriter Daniel Pine sums up what writer types is like when Eric doesn't have a co-host.
4: Basically, it's about a person who goes crazy and becomes a monster.
2: And author Steve Barry reveals what happened to Eric's
0: last co-host. He disappeared, never to be seen again. And the question is, did he survive?
1: So Lindsay, you are a prolific screenwriter and every novelist I know wants to write screenplays and be in TV or in the movies. Is it the other way around too? Do you have plans to write a novel anytime soon?
2: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I think writers just write. A lot of times we have the one medium that we gravitate to towards first. For me, it was TV. I just love TV, but I was also a big reader. I still am. And I think as you're working on your first chosen medium you start to realize like this story doesn't quite work as i see it in my head in this current medium i wonder what it would be like if i tried it you know as something else so i think that's part of why a lot of our authors feel a story and watch tv and they're like i wonder if this story would work better or be successful as a tv show or a screenplay or anything like that and it absolutely goes both ways um i'm also a huge gamer uh So I'm a big belief that some stories are just so vast and wonderful and they work better as video games. Writers just write and then eventually you discover the medium that certain stories just really pop for you.
1: I think most of the novelists are looking over at the TV writers and and really coveting the paycheck more than the medium.
2: (laughs) Oh, well, (laughs) we don't have J.K. Rowling money, but...
1: Well, yeah. now people often criticize TV for being the downfall of writing and sort of an anti-intellectual pursuit. But I, I feel like they forget that TV shows and movies are written. There is a real craft going on there, the same as with a novel. Do you think screenwriters don't get enough credit?
2: I think we get credit. I think a lot of the problem is is that there is a magic of Hollywood element, and so a lot of the the behind the scenes is kept behind the scenes. So that you can just go in and watch a movie and enjoy it. And you can just watch a television show. Like, that's what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be a little bit of escapism. It's supposed to be, you know, for TV, you invite these characters into your home every week. And you're not necessarily thinking about all the work that goes into making this television show. That's part of the point. It's part of what we do. Like, we're, we're trying to present you with this product as a finished thing so that you just enjoy it. So I think we, I think we get the credit for the most part, obviously, there's there's certain situations where not necessarily writers aren't uh, credited with certain things or there are certain situations where the credit is given to maybe the director or the actor or whatever. But it's also all part of the collaboration process
0: mm-hmm. so
2: that if it's a successful product it usually means everyone worked pretty well together and gave it their all and did all the work that they could. And so the direct, like, no matter where the credit is being directed, I mean, it's really won by everybody who is working on the product.
3: Yeah.
1: Well, do you see any similarities in an actor interpreting your words when they do a performance? and then a reader of a novel sort of playing the movie in their heads when they read a book. Is is it sort of the same process that goes on?
2: Mm -hmm. I would say a more similar process to when you read a book and you watch a little movie in your head. I think that's more of the writer's process. You know, we write and we see the little movie in our head and and we're like, yeah, that, or no, not (laughs) that. But then actors are just so... They're so wonderful in that they you can cast someone and they show up and they you know do the scene and you're just like you can just sit there and say holy cow I never even saw that depth or saw that aspect of the character I'm constantly surprised by the the amount that an actor can bring to a character and the new facets of a character that they can show just by embodying this character so there's just this this special magic of interpretation that skilled actors have that's just so joyous and wonderful to watch It takes you <laughs> in unexpected places or j- they just nail it exactly the way you wanted them to and it's so beautiful or actors just they just bring such wonderful magic to a script that it's hard to describe
1: nice well I'm glad you've had good experiences because I know uh, yeah. my fair share of writers and directors who uh, think some actors are nightmares
2: <laughs> I mean look we're all every industry has its own has its own drama and how you know because we're all human and we're all we all have our own flaws but um yeah and i just i have nothing but love and respect for actors and the work and craft that they do
1: okay well all right let's talk to our first author what do you say sure well another successful screenwriter and novelist daniel pine has written feature films such as pacific heights doc hollywood he wrote the remake of the manchurian candidate and he was an executive producer on this series bosch his latest novel water memory is about a government operative who risks losing her own memory to all the trauma she suffered and when she takes a boat journey on a shipping freighter pirates take over and she's forced to use her skills again and that sounds uh, not like a relaxing boat cruise uh have you ever have you ever taken i've never taken a cruise even like a normal cruise let alone on a freighter but like a big cruise ship just because i've heard so many nightmare stories have you ever been on a cruise
2: i actually have i went on like a school or a post high school trip uh overseas and was on a cruise ship for three days i think any pirates no pirates thankfully (laughs) let me tell you because i don't think at 18 i was equipped to handle that um, I don't think my current age, I'm supposed to have that. But <laughs> I I remember the best part being that they would feed you at any moment of the day. <laughs> <laughs> that was really where my focus was. It was good food. Any time of day that I rolled out of bed, they would give me food and I would be able to eat. Mm, that was really wonderful at the time. <laughs>
1: So Daniel, Water Memory, your brand new novel. Now this had me from the hook because I love a book set on a boat or a train or in a submarine, you know, someplace <laughs> where the characters are trapped. And Aubrey takes this trip on this ship, this unusual trip on a ship to, to try to relax, but that doesn't exactly happen for her. But I wanna know, are you like me? Have you always been drawn to stories where characters are limited and where they can go and have to sort of make do with these limited resources?
4: Yeah, I'm also, I, I'm also really drawn to stories about ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances like North by Northwest. And Aubrey's not exactly ordinary, but I tried to ground her in a way that made her journey more real. And by putting her on this boat, and also putting her, she's off book. She's she's not working at the time, so it kind of it kind of opened up possibilities for her to have to improvise, for her to have to wonder what it is she does for a living. Yes, I mean the short answer is yeah. I love it, it's such a great structural device to have yeah. a journey.
1: Yeah, and and, and to to trap uh, this person in this situation where she's doesn't have you know the resources that she might have in 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 a, a life not stranded in the middle of the water right <laughs> she, right she can't go anywhere she can't make a phone call and send in the rescue team she's got she's got to use her wits
4: yeah it's funny it originally the idea originally came to me i was on a scout with tak fujimoto the cinematographer and he told me that he does this between movies he'll just go on a freighter and chill out and read books and watch videos and stare at the ocean. I was thinking really from the point of view of the pirates of how embarrassing it would be if they tried to take over one of these ships and and some special forces person was on board. But then I had the character of Aubrey and she was wandering around and I wanted to do something with that character and they, it seemed like a perfect match.
2: Yeah. So you're also an accomplished screenwriter, uh, obviously. What, for you, makes a story feel right for a novel versus for a movie?
4: Wow, that's a really good question because I tend to approach every story as it could be anything. But screenplays are so much more contained and what I, what I wanted to do with this story was explore Aubrey's memories because she's losing them. I think it would have been more difficult in a screenplay, in a movie, to maneuver around and do all the flashbacks and do the episodes that she's remembering, it might have felt a little more jagged and a a little bit rushed because I love the way that in a novel you have more time to dig into character, slow down the narrative, let it go where it wants to go. What I've always loved about screenplays, but what I had to learn was that art of concision where it's more about what you leave out as it is what you put in. Yeah.
1: So I do want to talk about one of your screenplays in specific Pacific Heights. Uh This is one of my wife's favorite movies because her favorite genre of film are stories where a stranger comes in and absolutely ruins the lives of some innocent suckers. (laughs) And this is sort of the standard bearer of that style. But in looking back at, at some of your screenplays and, and going all the way back to, to the beginning for you, it seems pretty obvious you're always drawn to thrillers. Has that always sort of been where your mind goes when, you, when you're writing and coming up with stories?
4: I like the motor of thrillers, although I have a, I have a pretty broad definition of what a thriller is. You know, I'm not a big fan of thrillers like Fatal Attraction, where basically it's about a person who goes crazy and becomes a monster, and, and arguably Pacific Heights skirts that convention. But I, I do like the motor of thrillers, and I'm, I'm a big fan of, of Graham Greene, and Katherine Ann Porter, Ship of Fools, and Patricia Highsmith, and all those, you know, Raymond Chandler. I like, I like the, the momentum that the thriller gives you. But I, you know, you could argue that many, many great novels are really thrillers in a yeah. way. Moby Dick is a thriller. For sure. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I am drawn to him. Although I have to say that Pacific Heights was based on a thing that actually happened to me and my wife. Oh, no. where at the very very she's from San Francisco and at the very beginning of my career I made some money doing television and we wanted to have an apartment in San Francisco because she had a little band and was still performing up there so we came up with this idea of taking the money that I'd saved and investing in duplex or triplex and then the two rents on the lower two units would pay for our unit. So we found a building. It was great. We did it and we hired a management company to rent the apartments for us because we weren't up there and they let in this guy who did a more benign version of the guy in Pacific Heights he got in would hope so <laughs> yeah he got in by chance he asked for a key so that he could get the phone hooked up and once he was in he wouldn't leave and then all these rental laws in San Francisco kicked in and you had to go through a regular eviction to get him out oof and it was really creepy cuz when we were there he you know he'd hide and my mind just my mind just sort of blew it up And I I started hearing stories from a lot of people who'd had experiences like this. It's a very American experience to own property and rent it and be a landlord. And it was funny because the director, John Schlesinger, is English. And we had lots of really fascinating discussions because that is not a tradition in England. Here, you know, people had stories of roommates that they'd rented to who were hard to get out or they rented their garage to somebody to keep their car in it. And then that turned into a disaster. So I collected all these stories and then just
1: kind of wound it out. Well, I'm glad it worked out better for you than it did for the characters <laughs> in the film. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we got the guy out.
2: You're An executive producer on Bosch, uh, the series based on the Michael Connelly novels. Can you talk a little bit about the unique challenge of developing someone else's character and writing for someone else's character?
4: Yeah. You know, it's kind of a mixed experience because on the one hand, it's really nice to have existing material, you know, plotted, carefully plotted material to work from.
1: And a ton of it.
4: And a ton of it. And what we would do is we would take two or more novels and we'd wind them together. So there were usually two plots. That gave us enough material for 10 episodes. And Mike was in the room with us. So that was really helpful because he is very generous. He doesn't want to just slavishly stick to his book. But he has all this knowledge and material, not just about the character, but about Los Angeles Police Department and crime because he was a crime reporter and he does meticulous research. He has all these contacts who would come into the room and tell us their stories, FBI agents and other cops. And so that part of it is really good. What's hard about it is is it's a franchise. You have an existing character. You don't have as much leeway you can't go as many places with the character as you might want to go because he exists in another realm so you can't scuff him up too much and ruin mike's other versions of him right i I, but i have to say i really really enjoyed it because sometimes in television i get frustrated with the fact that television is basically all second act because you need to keep the story going season after season. So you're, you set up the premise in the pilot, and then even if it's serialized, it never really ends. So you aren't writing to an ending. Right. Whereas with Bosch, because we were doing books, a season was like a book. So, so the episodes were more like chapters than episodes. And you knew that you had to get to a certain place. So they had, it had a great shape to it.
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, in Water Memory, Aubrey's greatest strength is, in many ways, is her motherhood. I mean, she's got all this incredible training, these black ops skills, but kind of her motivating factor is getting back to her kids. And I mean, when you were developing her, what what was the moment of inspiration that you realized, okay, these kick-ass black ops skills aren't going to be enough. I need to give her this other layer. A, I
4: I have adult children, so so I I had I had some experience dealing with them. And I also have a little bit of the experience of having had a career that my children until they were adults really didn't register. And, and, (laughs) you know, they,
1: you you were a black ops agent. What?
4: (laughs) Yeah. In in Hollywood. Uh, (laughs) No, because, because I didn't really, I, I'm not that plugged into Hollywood social life. You know, they led a kind of a normal kid life and they, they knew that i wrote movies and television but they didn't really pay attention to it because I wasn't writing anything that they wanted to watch <laughs> so it wasn't until they were really in high school or older that they started to register what I did but I was with with Aubrey I was I was really interested in this idea that she was she was the breadwinner of the family her husband stayed home and was the primary caregiver so she had this she has these dual guilt one is that she was away a lot and she was away from her children. And the second is that she had to lie to him. She couldn't tell them, you know, what she was doing. So she's dealing with both of those things. And I, I it's a it's a bit of a log line to say that motherhood is her strength. It is, but it's also her Achilles heel because right. part of what troubles her and part of what gets her in a little bit of trouble in this is Is that she and has gotten her in trouble her whole life, is that she's wanted to protect her children from what she does. And that's caused her to, you know, create these fictions to not tell them exactly what she does. And now it's coming back to haunt her because they're finding out.
2: Aubrey has more adventures in store, obviously. Um, but she'll probably never get on a boat again, right? (laughs) you right. <laughs> in her future yeah it
4: was really you know I'm I'm working on I've never done a sequel and I oh. watching Mike Connolly not only you know work on Bosch and develop other pilots but while I was with him he wrote I think he wrote four novels <laughs> and the way that he can keep going back to Harry Bosch and mine that territory and find new things to do is just it seems amazing to me. So I'm working on the second novel of Aubrey, but it's it's much different and it doesn't have the same motor because I don't just want to do, oh, now she goes on an airplane and right. tries to hijack it. Although that would be easy, that would, that would be the diehard way.
1: Exactly, yeah, yeah. and then you're into yeah. speed too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, Daniel, uh, thanks for your time and uh, for speaking with us. And I think the lesson that we've all learned today is that uh, Michael Connelly needs to stop making us look bad. He needs to slow (laughs) down. Oh, man.
2: He's a a
1: machine. He's amazing. Well, next up, we talked with J.A. Jantz, author of over 60 novels in the J.P. Beaumont series, the Allie Reynolds series, and the Joanna Brady series, which is her new one, Missing and Endangered. Uh, To connect with her, we suffered through a nightmare of technical glitches, but she stuck it out, and we finally connected for a great conversation. Now, Lindsay, she is an Arizona girl like yourself, and the Brady series is set in Arizona. Do you like to see familiar settings in the books you read, or do you more like to be transported to somewhere else that you've never been?
2: You know, I like both. There's a lot to be said of a familiarity of like, oh, I know that place, or oh, look, they're writing about this. This is so amazing. I live in LA now, so obviously there's a lot more uh, books and stuff set here, but there's not as many set in Arizona, so I do get a very special like, oh my God, it's set in Arizona. I'm so excited to read this.
1: Well, Jay Jantz, uh, thank you for joining us on Writer Types and thank you for putting up with uh, our technical glitches uh, this morning. You've been more than patient, but I shouldn't be surprised because anyone with the patience and fortitude to write as many books as you have shows a a lot of grit when it comes to seeing things through. So I'm, I'm curious, I th- like if you ever run into a story that's giving you problems, or you get you know midway through a book and you bog down, are you the kind of writer who will buckle down and figure out a way out, or are you more apt to set something aside and move on to the next idea? Well,
3: that's the portion of writing a book that I call wrestling with the devil. It means that I am tossing and turning in bed and disturbing my two dachshunds and my husband i'm trying to remember oh let's see i was writing an alley book deadly stakes and i know from writing more than 60 books the first 20 percent of a book is the most difficult part to write because you have to introduce everybody you have to introduce the new characters and the ongoing characters and you have to do so In a way that makes new readers and long term readers feel at home without boring the long term readers to tears. So that's the first part of the book. That's challenging. The middle part of the book is sort of like slogging through deep mud and eventually you get there. The last 20% of the book is usually what I call the banana peel. I know who the killer is, and the challenge then is getting all of the characters to be at the same location in time for the crashing climax. And in this book, I hit 80% and the book stopped dead. Oh no. And finally, just as I did this morning when I was tearing my hair out over technical issues, I turned to my wonderful retired engineer, electronics engineer husband, and I said, could you please read this and tell me how to finish it? And he read it, he read it, and then he turned to me and he said, why don't you do it the easy way? And so I did. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was all he had to say. And once I could see my path to the easy way, I was able to finish the book. But someone asked me if I were going to use one word to describe myself. I believe that word would be determined. If somebody tells me no, I'll say like hell. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good quality and for a writer to have. My path to wanting to be a writer began early. I went to the University of Arizona. Because I wanted to be a writer, I signed up as an English major. I was working my way through school, working in the English department, and part of my job was putting the faculty mail in their little slots. I was doing that one day when the creative writing professor came in. And I turned to him and I said, oh, I'm hoping to sign up for your class this fall. And he looked me up and down and he said, you're a girl. And I said, so, he said, girls become teachers or nurses, boys become writers. And he wouldn't let me into his class. So what did I do? I became a teacher and then I became a librarian. But in the meantime, I married a guy who was allowed in the creative writing program that was closed to me. He never published anything, but that didn't keep him from telling me in 1968 there's only going to be one writer in our family, and I'm it. Oh, wow. And so for the next 12 years while I was married to him, the only writing I did was in the dark of night when he was passed out cold in his recliner. He imitated Faulkner and Hemingway primarily by drinking too much and writing too little. <laughs> and well, so I didn't start writing until a year and a half after my divorce. So I sat down and wrote the first Beaumont book, Until Proven Guilty.
2: Speaking of your first books, uh, you wrote them while working at a job in life insurance. I was just curious, how do you think a job where you had to talk about and deal with death and its aftermath, uh, how did that influence the kind of books you did decide to write?
3: Well, the life insurance job came about when I was living in Washington state my father was in the life insurance business, and I, I went to see a New York Life agent who to do some address changing on policies my first husband and I own. And he offered me a job, and I thought, well, my, my dad works for the equitable. Why would I go to work for the competition? So in those days, if your representative was a long-distance call away, you were authorized to call them to collect. So I called the guy collect. And I asked him for a job. (laughs) He hired me. Years later, he said, Judy, why did you call me collect and ask me for a job? And I said, well, if I'd had enough money for a long distance call, I wouldn't have needed the job. (laughs) But I worked in the life insurance industry for 10 years. When I started writing, I was a single parent with two little kids, a full-time job selling life insurance. And the only time I had to write was from four o'clock in the morning until seven o'clock in the morning when I got the kids up to go to school Mm. and got me dressed to go sell life insurance. I believe that takes us back to the word determination. I didn't set an alarm clock. My eyes popped open at four o'clock in the morning. When I came dragging home with my my first husband at age 18, my folks looked at him and said, this guy is a raging alcoholic. And I said, oh, you're just teetotalers. What do you know? Well, it turns out that they knew a lot more than I suspected, but as soon as we got married, my dad had me buy a life insurance policy on my husband, a $50,000 policy. So when he died, the proceeds from that policy came to me and I invested 10% of those $5,000 in an Eagle computer, dual floppy, not steam driven, but quote, close, <laughs> 128K of memory. Cool. And a daisy wheel printer. And I wrote many books on that plug, ugly eagle. <laughs> but the guy who sold it to me fixed it so that every morning at four o'clock when I staggered over to my computer desk and turned it on, these are the words that flashed across the screen. A writer is someone who has written today. And today, we've been doing text stuff. Today, I don't qualify as a writer.
2: <laughs> Aww.
3: In writing that first Beaumont book, I put myself on the train to go to Portland and spend five days with a friend from my days in the life insurance business. I had a stack of blue line notebooks and a fistful of pens. And I wrote the words, she might've been a cute kid once, that was hard to tell now, she was dead. And as soon as I wrote those words, I was walking around in J.P. Beaumont's shoes. I was seeing the world through his eyes. I was hearing what was being said to him. I was hearing what he said. And in the course of that five days, I wrote 30,000 words. Wow, that's amazing. And Beau and I have been author and character for going on 40 years.
1: Uh, that, and that's so impressive. And and of course, then you've got these other series and the new book, Missing and Endangered, is the latest in the Joanna Brady series, which is approaching almost the same number of, of books as the J.P. Beaumont. I mean, uh, my concern before heading into interviewing you was that you've been at this for a while and, and I feel like I couldn't possibly ask you anything you haven't already been asked before. <laughs> You know, the, the fear is we, we might know everything there is to know about J.A. Jance And I wonder if there's ever any concern when you get this many books into a series. Like, do you worry that you've told everything there is to tell about Joanna Brady? Or each time you set out to tell a new story, do you find something else
3: new to discover about her? I find out something new about each character as I go along. I have nothing but supreme respect for Sue Grafton. And I'm so sorry her series ended at Y. But I could never have set out to write 26 books about the same character without murdering him someplace along the way. And the fact that I have different characters, different locales, different groups of characters is something that helps keep me fresh. So I'm usually away from one character or another for a while. And when it's time to start up with them again, it's a way for me to catch up with those characters.
2: Yeah, actually, I'm from Arizona.
3: Whereabouts? Uh,
2: I was raised in Chandler, Arizona, up in Maricopa. Sure. And I went to ASU, so our school's arrivals, but...
3: Okay, I'll try not to sing Bear Down, Arizona.
2: Well, we'll control ourselves somehow. But because I'm from there, I just love stories that are set there because you just don't see it that often. So I was just curious, like, could you talk a little bit about how Arizona and Cochise County like influenced and inspired Joanna and in her adventures?
3: We moved to Arizona. My family moved to Arizona from a farm in northeastern South Dakota when I was four years old. We left on the 28th of January on a day when it was 28 degrees below zero. They had to use a team of horses to pull the car and our loaded trailer out to the road six weeks later. And I remember hanging on the fence, looking up at the clear blue sky overhead and feeling the sun all over my body. And that's the beginning of my love affair with Arizona. When I started writing the Beaumont books, the Beaumont books were in the first person through a male homicide detective's point of view, and he happened to be a lifetime Seattle resident. Well, guess what? I was none of those things. So I had to do a lot of research to make all those things work, and I wrote nine of them. And by the time I finished writing nine Beaumonts in a row, I was sick and tired of him, (laughs) and I threatened to knock him off. And my editor said, oh, please don't do that. Why don't you come up with a different character? So I created Joanna Brady. You can't see that I'm 6'1", but I was six feet tall in seventh grade, and I've always wondered what it would be like to be short, so I made Joanna short. My expectation when I started writing Desert Heat was that she would turn into an amateur sleuth. But... She started asking questions and looking into stuff herself. And I kept telling her, you can't do that. You're not a cop. And finally, I said, I give up. So at the end of Desert Heat, people prevail upon her to throw her hat in the ring and she's elected sheriff. People who don't live in Arizona assume that as soon as they cross the state line, it's going to be wall to wall saguaros. But I grew up in Cochise County in the far southeast corner of Arizona, right on the New Mexico-Mexican border. There are no saguaros growing inside Cochise County. And so when when they were doing the the cover on the first book, I told my editor, there are no saguaros in Cochise County. Don't put a saguaro on the cover. So one day he called me and he said, you're going to receive a package today. Don't open it until you have me on the phone. And sure as hell, there's a swirl on the, on the cover. <laughs> <laughs> in Missing and Endangered, a lot of the action takes place in and around Skeleton Canyon. Well, what how do I know about Skeleton Canyon? When I was probably 12, we went on a Sunday picnic and got caught in a flash flood coming home from it. So, oh, no. Skeleton Canyon is very firmly in my, <laughs> in my brain, and I, I put the Skeleton Canyon area in Missing and Endangered.
1: Well, I wanna thank you for, uh, for sticking with us, for uh, your, your patience and your fortitude in, uh, in making this happen, and I look forward to whatever comes next. Uh, wh- whichever character you speaks to you next to, to come out of your pen is uh, good for me.
3: Well, the next Ellie book is written. It's due out in June, and I'm working on the next Beaumont book right now. So thank you.
1: You don't still get up at four in the morning, right?
3: Uh, No. Okay, good. (laughs) No, I do not do that anymore. Thank you very much. (laughs)
1: well it's time for a question and for this segment Lindsay, this is like we're at a party and i'm gonna go off in the corner and talk to some of my nerdy friends and mercifully leave you to stay here <laughs> by the day
3: uh.
1: <laughs> when, when you're hanging around do you tend to to talk shop and talk industry talk with people and sort of risk alienating anyone who's not in the business
2: um You talk shop for a little bit, but I mean, for the most part, I think everyone's kind of the same where you hit a point where you're like, any subject but work, any subject but work. Pick one, pick one. Iguanas, let's talk about iguanas for a while.
1: Well, it's time for a question, and joining me this time is author Jake Hinkson, who is one of my absolute favorite writers of all time. I adore his book so much, and one of my favorite things to do is to get together with Jake and talk about really niche things that appeal only to us, so today is going to be perfect. Uh, Jake's latest book, Dry County, is further proof that he is the standard bearer for noir novels in this century, even though his books would have fit right in on a spinner rack in the 1950s. Jake, welcome to you. Thanks for having me. And in this corner, we have Rosemarie and Vince Keenan, who write as a team under the pen name Renee Patrick, and they turn out a really great mystery series set in old Hollywood and featuring amateur sleuth Lillian Frost and her friend and sidekick, the legendary costume designer Edith Head. The fourth in the series, The Sharpest Needle, is hot off the presses. Welcome to you both. Happy to be here. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Eric. Well, our question this time really gets at the heart of this segment for me, which is uh, it's a question I'm not sure anyone else in the world but me wants to know the answer to. But (laughs) damn it, it's my show, so I'm going to ask it. So I want to know what author do you think has had the best film adaptations of their work? So We we set a couple of ground rules right off the top. We're going to take Ian Fleming and Arthur Conan Doyle off the table because both Bond and Holmes are industries unto themselves. It's not really a level playing field. But we're going to start with the Renee Patrick team. Uh, Who do you guys think has had exceptional luck in film adaptations?
5: Well, I'll start there and say Patricia Highsmith, Hmm. because she may not have had the most film adaptations of her work, but I think these are some of the best films. You've got Strangers on a Train, Purple Noon, The American Friend, Ripley's Game the talented Mr. Ripley, and then of course, Carol. So even from when she was still writing up until now, a lot of excellent movies being made from her books.
6: This is in spite of the fact that some of these adaptations aren't perfect. They kind of rub us the wrong way where like, again, apologize in advance for any spoilers here, but in Purple Noon, the the first big adaptation of talented Mr. Ripley, he doesn't get away with it which kind of cuts against yeah. everything she's trying to do in the book. And then The Talented Mr. Ripley is one of those adaptations that it works so perfectly on so many levels, and yet Anthony Mangella has a reading of the Ripley character that I personally don't agree with, but that works for his movie.
7: I just want to say a, a word about Highsmith, which is, uh, I thought, a great pick. And, um, and part of what is interesting about Highsmith is that she, what she did was so psychological and so interesting that it could give birth to these disparate interpretations so that you could have a movie like purple noon or the town to Mr. Ripley, which are so divergent and yet they're coming off of the same
1: book, the same material.
7: Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And yet somehow she like encouraged that somehow she sort of gave birth to that with what she had done.
1: Well, I th- Highsmith is one of those people that she doesn't necessarily have the adaptations that she's not re- not really a name above the title the adaptation. It's not like, you know, Stephen King's, you know, fill in the blank. It's everything. I I think a lot of people, most people maybe wouldn't even know that it's a Patricia Highsmith adaptation with some of these films.
5: I think that's very true. And yet there she is. And her sensibility is found in there. I mean, I remember when I, I saw *Strangers on a train and loved it. It's one of my favorites ever, but I didn't read the book until much later. And I was like, Oh, okay. The novel is so internal. It's so all stream of consciousness in Guy's mind. Um, it's kind of amazing to me that Hitchcock was able to to take the key things and the tone and actually put them into the film.
1: Yeah, again, like a, a film that is it's very much an Alfred Hitchcock film. It's not he he overshadows her her involvement in yeah. that. No, I think that, that's that's a good pick. All right, Jake, what's uh, what do you have for for a first choice here?
7: My pick would be I, I'm going for the volume here. <laughs> um, which would be uh, the Belgian writer Georges Simenon, who is kind of the godfather of European noir in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. You, know, if you take out Arthur Conan Doyle and you take out Agatha Christie, then Simenon has he's number three for the most adaptations of his work. Wow. Um, Clocking in somewhere around a hundred and fifty uh, wow. adaptations wow. of his work. Now a lot of those are. Coming off of his sort of his version of Sherlock Holmes, his marquee character, uh, Maigret, the French inspector. And a lot of them, like, really, really good. Um, the first Maigret that ever got to the screen was Night at the Crossroads, which was directed by Jean Renoir. Not too shabby uh, yeah. to have Renoir be just the guy that's sort of bringing you to this. That's screen. a strong
6: start.
1: Yeah,
7: bad, ain't bad. And that's just that's just for the Maigre stuff. You know, there's this whole other area of Semenon's work, which is what he called the hard novel or just the psychological novel, but which today we would just call noir novels. I mean, there you have a movie like Panic in 1946, which is an incredible film, and and you know it just goes on from there all up until like the mid. 2000 teens with something like the blue room. So a lot of, a lot of fertile ground for Seminon.
1: And a lot of those, I like guess, people are, are unfamiliar with a lot of those, uh, of course, Jake being who you are, that you've, a lot of those are European adaptations. So a lot of, uh, a lot of subtitles to get through, but, but well worth seeking out some of those films
6: for sure. But I
7: mean, even if you go to like 1957, you get a pretty good Phil Carlson movie, uh, the brothers Rico, Oh um, yeah. With, uh, Conti. So, I mean, you know, there's a lot of someone on to go through for sure. Yeah.
6: All
1: right. Well, uh, Rosemary Vince, uh, you, have, you have a, a runner up that is uh, equally impressive.
6: We were kind of torn. The two other names that we came up with, um, obviously, is DeShiel Hammock, because you can just point to the 1941 version of the Maltese Falcon and say, is there a better adaptation of any novel ever made?
1: it's so good True. it
6: makes you forget the two that preceded it I was going to
1: ask if it, if it was tarnished at all by uh, the previous attempts
6: not really I have a weird soft spot for the, for the 34 adaptation Satan Met a Lady where they basically tried to turn it into a comedy Yeah, because it, it's so odd especially if you know the book just all the changes that, that they make to it but, but the, the Houston version is just peerless and uh, then you have the Thin Man movies and the, the Glass Key, which they adapted twice.
1: All right, Jake, uh, who else you got? Who's, who's a good runner up for you?
6: Well,
7: I'm gonna go sort of the other direction. Um, so if Simonon sort of would get a vote from me just for the sheer size of the the output, I was thinking someone like Elizabeth Holding, Elizabeth Sansi Holding, who hmm. uh, wrote an incredible novel called The Blank Wall, which is to this day, one of the most, maybe the most underrated crime novel of the 40s, I think. Oh, absolutely. I buy that. It was adapted twice to pretty incredible results. The first was uh, The Reckless Moment, which is, I think, one of the best noirs of the classic period. Uh, And then The Deep End, Tilda Swinton, which was, what, 2003? Something like that. Which was, to my mind, one of the best uh, neo-noirs. So you basically have three what I would call three masterpieces there. One great book and two great movies. That's not too sure. Not short. at
5: all. I would I yeah. totally agree yeah. with the deep end. That movie just, just knocked me for a loop when I saw it. Yeah, Tilda Swinton, that's maybe one of her best performances. And again, going
6: back to what you were saying, Jake, about Highsmith, the idea that the movies could feel so different and yet spring from the same source is really a sign of, of how strong that book is.
1: I want to talk about someone like Elmore Leonard. If, if you pare down... His adaptations to just the A list, he's got a really impressive track run. You got Out of Sight, Jackie Brown, Get Shorty, going back to 310 to Yuma, Mm -hmm. the series Justified. If you look at just that, you would think, oh well, here's your top of the list, your your A star. And yet, he's had so many adaptations that inevitably you get some stuff that's uh, kind of in the middle, and some stuff that's just flat out no good. Does someone who has that many adaptations and a fairly middling batting average, does it drag down the output of the good stuff? I don't think so. I mean,
7: I, giving your film adapted to, uh, or getting your book adapted to film is always a roll of the dice. Just the films that you mentioned, and you could probably mention a couple more. I mean, that's pretty impressive. You know yeah.
5: what I mean? Out of sight and Get Shorty and Jackie Brown. If they're on TV, you flip past them, you're going to leave it on and watch at least yeah. like either the whole rest of it or another 20 minutes. Oh, there's that scene where this happens. And yeah, those are three amazing movies.
6: Yeah. I mean, when, as soon as you mentioned his name, Eric, my, those were the three movies that came to mind, the two Scott Frank adaptations and the Tarantino film. It's not like I thought of stick with Burt Reynolds. <laughs> That's one of them, right. right. Or Killshot, uh, <laughs> yep. kill shot, which is actually an okay movie, but not particularly memorable. I mean, when, those are the movies that immediately come to mind when you hear a name. That's, that's a track record. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All
1: right. Well, uh, you've answered my question wonderfully. Thank you all for joining me. Uh, this, this was great for me. I, I, I love talking about this stuff. Uh, and I, I couldn't think of a better trio to, to help me answer this question. So thanks for, uh, for being with me today. Thank you. Well, our pleasure. It was great fun.
7: Yeah, it's great to be here.
1: Our final guest is Steve Barry, author of 16 novels in his Cotton Malone series of thrillers, all with a historical mystery at the core. Barry is a bestseller who got a late start and who has found a winning formula for his books based on two factors that he will explain. Now, Lindsay, are there any mysteries in your past that we should know about?
2: No. (laughs) I am one of the most boring people you will ever meet.
1: (laughs) Uh, I think I think if you dig deep enough into anyone's past, there's something back there.
2: Mm, my past is a lot of sitting in pajamas and playing video games and staring at a computer screen. So before that I was at school, <laughs> which was a lot of the same. So I'm not really sure, <laughs> I think you'd be sorely disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> So, Steve,
1: Barry, thanks for joining us on Writer Types. Uh, Cotton Malone is back in his 16th adventure with The Kaiser's Web. That is an impressive number of novels, sir. But when we look at your history of 30 years in law, it, it would be easy, I think, for a lot of readers to assume Cotton Malone would have been a lawyer. But no, he's a bookseller and he's a spy now I want to know when you were behind your desk practicing law, did you dream one day of doing one or maybe both of those things?
0: <laughs> didn't dream of any of them, to be honest with you. Uh, I had a little voice in my head telling me to write all during the 1980s, but I ignored the voice. I just completely, I just, I didn't pay attention to it. I just let it go. I, I didn't write my first word till I was, you know, 35 years old. Wow. You know, from the day I wrote my first word to the day I sold my first word was 12 years. And I wrote eight novels during that twelve-year period. Five went to New York publishing houses. They were rejected eighty-five times. So Oof. I made it, the eighty-sixth time, twelve years after I started. So there was there was not a lot of dreaming going on. There was many, <laughs> a lot of nightmares and rejection.
1: <laughs> well, that, that, if if we're trying to encourage uh, young would-be writers, that's both encouraging and discouraging at the same time.
0: I think. <laughs> okay. I'm the poster child for it can be done. So don't nobody can sit back and say it can't be done because I started with nothing and eighty five rejections over you know, twelve years. So it can be done.
1: There you go. All right. I'm officially inspired now.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's amazing. So your novels almost always have an element of history just threading through the story. Are these historical moments often the inspiration for your story?
0: The novel starts with something from the past, something that I've come across in somewhere. It may be on a trip, it may be in a book or a magazine, or or maybe something I saw. But it's something real from the past, and it's usually something you know very little about, and I'm hoping you want to know more about. But even more important, that thing from the past has to be real and still has to be relevant today. The first thing I call the "ooh" factor. The when you talk about like. Templars or Malta or, or Charlemagne, the thing that gets you to go, ooh, kind of. Yeah. Uh, the second thing is the so what? Who cares if we find the Amber Room? Who cares if Queen Elizabeth I might have been a man? Who, who cares about the Knights of Malta? What does it matter? It still has to have a so what to it. So I have to have both elements in my story in order to start. You know, luckily I've been able to find those, you know, sixteen times and then with four standalones, so I've found it twenty times now.
1: Right and are it something you're always constantly on the hunt for or they just come to you and and you're tuned into them so that you recognize them where the rest of us might just pass over or something like that.
0: You never, ever, ever find one if you go looking for it. Uh Yeah, it has to find you. And the trick is to recognize it when it finds you, yes. This novel is a perfect example, The Kaiser's Web. I was researching another novel about four years ago, not even thinking, not even in this time period. I was in another time period, and I came across something from World War II that I knew nothing about that fascinated me, that's real, and that actually happened, and that still has relevance today, and that's how this novel was born.
1: Wow. Wow. Cotton Malone gets into a lot of scrapes and he, and he manages to work his way out of it and and he's saved the country over and over again. He's, he's saved the world really. But I mean, why should we trust a man like Cotton Malone to, to save us over and over when he can't even save his own marriage?
0: (laughs) He's not very good with women. He's Terrible with women. He has, uh, uh, he's doing his best he can with Cassiopeia and he's trying to do better, but, uh, he, he, you know, we all have our weak points and women is his. He's just not very good with it, but he's learning. He's getting better at it. And this book is an interesting opportunity on that because every novel of Cut Malone novel, um, uh, I explore a different aspect of his character or personality, something I've never explored before. And this novel was him and Cassiopeia working together, not fighting, not fussing and fighting, not at each other's throats, not at odds, but working truly as a team. And it was fun to to have them in that situation. And so he's, he's beginning to loosen up and trust her, and she's trusting him, and their relationship is taking hold.
1: Yeah, in, in the crucible of uh, <laughs> some thrills, I, I don't know if my wife and I would be able to get through this kind of high pressure situation and not get into a few arguments.
0: <laughs> well, they usually do, and in this novel, I specifically didn't have those. I wanted them to be a team and to work as a team and cooperate as a team, and that was the new thing I was exploring, and it was fun. And I and I may do do it some more. I enjoyed it.
2: Do you think, just in general, if you, do you think if you dig deep enough into the past of any place that you'll uncover some secrets and probably also some people who want those secrets to stay hidden?
0: Sure, you would. but the finding the secrets only half of it. You can find something from the past that's really cool and and you make you go like, "Wow, that is neat. Ooh, I'm really interested. But if it doesn't still matter today, then it it's useless. You have to have two aspects to it, and I can assure you those two aspects are hard to match up. I find a lot of ooh factor that's really cool, but I have no so what, and I have a lot of so what's that I can't attach to something with oo. People send me things all the time. You know this, you know that, you know that. Well, the problem is it doesn't matter if I knew it or doesn't. Can I make it relevant today, and is it interesting enough to propel a 110,000-word manuscript? Right. And, and
1: I guess it, there's probably something that's got, to, I guess the ooh factor would come more if it's, you know, often uh, some exotic location in Europe or something, or can you find the same sort of factor in, you know, small town USA? Does, does the location matter at all? No, it
0: doesn't matter at all. No, you can find, I found, I found some great oohs within the constitution of the United States. You find ooh everywhere. In fact, finding the ooh factors easier than the so what? Much, much easier. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, and your choice to locate Cotton outside of the U.S. I mean, does that give you, does it make it a little maybe easier to have him launch into these globetrotting adventures? Because each one of these books really does. I mean, he, he gets around this guy.
0: He does. And this book's fun because I got to send him to South America and South Africa, which I've been wanting to send him to, which is what's fun to do. I did five American books where the, where the, the O factor and the so what was American oriented, and and then there's been now eleven international ones, and I'm going to keep him international for a while. I think it, I think the readers like that better. I, I did the American books because I wanted to explore the constitutional issues that I dealt with in those before anyone else uh, grabbed a hold of them, but I want to keep him overseas, and it allows me to launch him, you know, where pretty much wherever I want him to go. In my novels, the locations actually become characters in the story, so I choose those with great care.
1: Well, and and it works. I mean, I I think you're right. I think readers, uh, you know, for me, I I read for the escape to be taken somewhere else, and if that somewhere else can take me to, you know, all around the world, then yeah,
0: all the better. Yeah, that people people like it, particularly now. I mean, people you know want to escape. They want they don't want to think about what's going on, and, and that's why COVID will never appear in a Cot Malone novel. I'm not going to deal with that at all. In Cotton's world, COVID never happened. Yeah. I think people have had their fill of it, and they don't want to read about it, too.
1: Yeah. Well, that might hamstring them a little bit. But then again, I mean, now an exotic locale for me is is down the street. True. <laughs>
0: True. <laughs> I made the decision that I thought readers wanted to escape and wanted to to deal with it. And I've noticed television has done that, too. You know, a lot of the shows, the medical shows, did one show or two shows with COVID. Then they said months later, pandemic over and moved on. Yeah. Because, you know, you just don't you hear it every day, all day long. You don't want to watch it, too. I agree. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, So. When you plan out where to send cotton next, do you look for places that are new to you that you want to learn more about? Or are these all places that you are already familiar with?
0: No, it's both. Uh, some I'm familiar with. Some are new because I, I, I like new ones, particularly. Uh, this book, I'm very familiar with Germany and Switzerland and Austria. But uh, I had not been to South Africa or South America. We were supposed to go to South America last year, but weren't able to. So I I had to do those the old fashioned way. You know, you don't have to go somewhere to write about it, but it does help if you do. So I try to pick new locations because, as I said, they become almost like a character in the novel. And my readers look for those. I don't want to send Cotton to the same place over and over again.
1: Well, with this new one, the Kaiser's Web, you certainly uh, have locked into a good ooh moment. I mean, we're wondering what really did happen down in that bunker with uh, Hitler and Eva Braun. I mean, I, there, you couldn't ask for a, a better hook and a better question of what would have happened had things gone differently than the, the reality that we know. So uh, I think you've you got a great hook that uh, Cotton fans are really going to love on this new one. I
0: hope I hope so and this is not a book about Hitler surviving the war because I'll make it very clear he died that day but it but it is a book about someone else in that bunker that night someone else who we have no earthly idea what happened to and that's Martin Bormann and Bormann was a fascinating character he disappeared after April 30th never to be seen again and the question is did he survive and what he put in place at the end of 1944 which I knew nothing about and I think the readers are going to know are going to be surprised about it too what he actually put in place uh at that time you know and and it and it actually worked what he did actually did work and it's still relevant today I don't want to say what it is cuz I'll give away the book but <laughs> it's something, it's something very interesting that I stumbled across that's real
1: well, that's excellent. Well, uh, Steve, uh, if you'd ever decide to, to teach writing, I think you've got a feature, but I think we all would be more interested in you teaching a history class because I think you dig down to the interesting parts of history and not the dull stuff.
0: It'd be fun to do that one day.
1: Well, there you go, Lindsay. You did it. Was uh, co-hosting all you ever hoped it could be?
2: Everything and more. <laughs>
1: Well, I really thank you for joining me today, and I thank you for even just wanting to do it. This this was a lot of fun. I think you, you might have a future in podcasting. I, I can see that.
2: Oh, my God. Now I have to look up how to podcast. How do I do it? You're the one that did everything.
1: <laughs> if I can figure it out, it can't be that hard. All right. Well, listen, when you sell your next big TV show and you need an editor, I'm your man. Yeah. Don't, don't forget about me.
2: Uh, never. I would never forget about you I realized how it sounded when I paused after I would never <laughs> I was like wait must clarify
1: well you can find us at writertypespodcast.com you can find out more about me and my books at ericbeatner.com, and my latest two in the head is out now scooping up rave reviews of course all over Ooh. the place so check that one out and Lindsay we look forward to seeing your work uh, back on our screen soon thanks again yeah. for joining me
2: Awesome. Thanks for having me. This was so much fun.